Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. But any superstar has a hair trigger about certain things. You take a movie star, you have a few bad movies in a row, and all of a sudden it's not your fault. Look, I, I've represented Neil Simon, for example. Neil Simon's perhaps our most brilliant playwright. But I don't think Neil was ever wrong about anything in his entire life. <laughs> He'd fly me to Boston and say, what do you think? And I'd have to say terrific work when it was just a piece of crap you know the play never made it to broad but it was never the artist's fault all right welcome to another episode of industry standard First and foremost, to all of you that have written me and Facebooked me and Messenger pigeoned me or whatever you do to get a hold of me and get messages to me, it's been amazing. You guys, your comments are incredible. And sometimes certain things that you say, they'll start off and it'll be like the guest you had on. I, I hated that guest and I've always or I haven't liked this or I haven't liked that about the person you're interviewing. And then I'm like reading and I have like anxiety in my stomach and then it'll turn around and say, but I learned a lot about that person and I, I, I was wrong about that person and I really feel good about them now and I didn't know those things. So it's good that these interviews and these podcasts are making an impact to you as they are to me. I am very, very excited about the show today because I don't get a chance to interview many attorneys. And my guest today, Henry Bushkin, is an amazing man, not only an attorney, but a man who in many ways was part attorney and part manager, part agent, part publicist, part confidant, part best friend to one of the greatest American treasures and worldwide treasures that there ever was that was a living human being, and that's Johnny Carson. And today we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to talk about his career and his journey and how he got to where he is today. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the legend as well. So let me tell you a little bit about him. He is known as being an attorney, but for the purpose of this introduction, I will tell you 
that this book that he's written entitled Johnny Carson, the New York Times best 10 books of the year in 2013 and a number one New York Times bestseller. The author who sits before me for 18 years was Johnny Carson's personal legal advisor, fixer, confidant, and very close friend. In the years since, he's continued to practice law, but he can't do that anymore in Los Angeles because when you write a book that blows people away, people aren't expecting things. It's a new career, so I'm sure he'll probably tell you about the next book he's writing. During Carson's run on The Tonight Show, he became affectionately known as Bombastic Bushkin. One of the things that struck me, the best career advice he ever received, don't back down, Tom Petty. We have uh, so many things to talk about. I'm not going to go any more with this introduction because you guys don't understand how many pages I have. It's incredible what this guy's done and what's he been a part of. And rather than waste it on the introduction, I'd rather keep it all for you guys. Please welcome my guest today, Henry Bushkin. Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, my Thanks God. for the great uh, remarks. I appreciate it. Oh, we got more to come. You know, you can always tell when there's somebody who I really want to be here with the level of times that I reach out and email and try to get a hold of somebody. And for you, I really thought that I would never have you here. And you're very important to have me here because in my office, I have one of Johnny Carson's cue cards. He's a huge part of my life and he's a huge part of the world's life. And he's a huge part of your life as well. Uh, not just positive things in your life, but also some very difficult and very, very uh, tough times in your life. But before we get into that, I think what's important, because you're a guy who, like I said, you made your mark, you came from nowhere, similarly to the Stephen Wright story and many, many people in our business, they seemingly come from nowhere to get where they are. So let's go way, way back and tell me, the point when you actually didn't know you wanted to be an attorney and what was the moment where it came to you that you wanted to be a lawyer and you wanted to be in the profession? And then the second question to that is, is that when you thought about being in this profession and law, were you just thinking a different kind of law or were you thinking entertainment law? That's a lot of questions. Sorry. <laughs> well, to begin with, uh, I, I went to Lehigh and graduating from Lehigh was the beginning of the Vietnam War. So... I enlisted in the Navy uh, to join what was then the officer's candidate school to become an officer in the Navy because we all felt we were going in the military one way or another. And being from the Bronx and being Jewish, my mother had a heart attack that I was actually going to go into the service because Jewish boys didn't do that, according to Jewish mothers. So I, I actually joined up, but... One of the outs uh, of signing up for the Navy was if you continued on to graduate school in those days. So <clears throat> my mother and father, in effect, forced me, if you will, to go to law school. <laughs> I, I enlisted after law school, but this was so they, to law they school. They forced you to go. So in other words, there were no other professions that were interesting or whatever they wanted I law. I could have been a doctor. I could have been an accountant. Anything to, to continue school and not join the military. It was just one of those, you know, it's a Jewish thing. 
God, well, I, my, I'm Jewish, so I, I, I know that you, my mother wanted me to be a hospital administrator. I said, why do you want me to be a hospital administrator? Well, she says, you know, in the soap operas, they seem to be really important people. So I went to law school, and I thought I was going to be a securities lawyer. Now, interestingly enough, I spoke at the Clinton Library last week in Little Rock, and the person who invited me to speak was a good friend of mine at law school who happens to be a federal judge in Little Rock, appointed by Clinton. He was the chief judge of the Eastern District of Arkansas on the federal bench. And he and I were buddies in law school. We were both on scholarship, and in those days, Xerox was brand new. You know, it was a gigantic machine, if you remember. Yeah. And, and as part of our duties getting a scholarship, we had to do some work. So we manned the Xerox room. He could fill this room up. That's how big the machine was. And he and I became friends. And uh, I was at the Clinton Library, and he introduced me. And he said, as, as way back in law school, Bushkin wanted to be an entertainment lawyer. Now, that was just showbiz personified, because I had no idea of being a showbiz lawyer. It was just happenstance. I happened to join a little firm that happened to be an entertainment firm, because I had some expertise in copyright law. And that's what got me into entertainment, and that's what eventually led to Carson becoming a client. Well, let's talk about that for a second. So you're doing that, and how long before you meet uh, Carson? Like, how many years are you practicing law and doing what you're doing in the firm? I'm three years a lawyer got when, I meet, when I meet Johnny. Are you married yet? I am. Got it. And so this is an interesting story because you're asked to uh, meet Johnny Carson uh, regarding something that was illegal and against the law and something that people have gone to jail for for more than a year. And your first meeting with him that I want you to talk about is a situation where you're being asked to advise and help with something that's illegal and not just you are involved in it, but there are several professional people involved in this operation. Can you talk about that a little bit? Certainly. The One of the people is a fellow by the name of Joe Mullen, who's still a private eye in New York and a very well-known guy. And he and I and uh, two other fellows and Johnny went to this apartment where he suspected his then wife was carrying on an affair. And I was hired. That was Joanne. That was second wife Joanne. That's correct. And I was hired not for any reason other than to possibly keep him out of jail if the police showed up. I wasn't there to assist in any taking of anything. I was there just in case the cops showed up. But, you know, fortunately they didn't. I'm not a lawyer, but that would be an accomplice. In your world, in my world, I was the lawyer. <laughs> but if he was arrested and they did ask you under oath, did you know about this planning and were you a part of it? What well, would you say? I would say absolutely not. I was asked to go along on, on some trip across town three blocks actually so what you're and saying investigated an apartment that he presumably owned so what you're saying the rent. so what you're saying is attorneys often uh, don't tell the truth 
No, attorneys oftentimes figure out a way to to deal with a circumstance. I mean, Carson was doing nothing wrong, you understand. It was his wife who was carrying out an illicit affair with an apartment that he effectively was paying for. Now, it turns out that his secretary was in cahoots with the wife, and the, the lease was in the secretary's name. So obviously her husband, who was then a producer of The Tonight Show by the name of Rudy Tejas, he had to go because she had to go. That's what I entered into in Carson's world at that moment. All right. So let's, let's just let's talk about this a little bit. This is fascinating. So at the time that this happened, Johnny was doing The Tonight Show from New York, from 30 Rock, right? 30 That's Rock Rockefeller Plaza, which now um, Jimmy, uh, Fallon Jimmy Fallon is, is the Same studio. Same studio. Right. How unbelievable is that? As Jimmy Fallon so eloquently says, there are less people that have done The Tonight Show as a talk show host than there have been that have walked on the moon. And I think Jimmy Fallon's doing a terrific job myself. I enjoy watching him. I think the guy is very talented. I think he's very creative. And I think it's getting energy now that the show lacked for a lot of years. It really did. And I think it ties into this podcast when we talk about you, what you did for Johnny Carson, who came from nowhere, from Nebraska to do it. And Jimmy Fallon, who came from Albany, New York. And, and honestly... Uh, is doing things that no one else is doing in late night. And again, what we talked about, if you can, if you can deliver those kind of performances in any profession you're in, you're, you're, you're in a position to win. So at the time, Johnny had been the host of the tonight show for how many years when you got involved? Uh, Just about eight, eight years. Okay. So this is something that's interesting. So he, breaks into uh, his wife's apartment to find evidence. Did they find evidence that she was having an affair? Of course. The apartment was furnished with all his old furniture. It was populated with all of his old mementos. And it was populated with pictures of his wife and others. Not him, but others. So, yeah, we had plenty of evidence. And, and you have to remember... No, but you can't use that evidence. We can, but you have to remember that New York then was a uh, adultery was basically the only grounds for divorce. And this was New York in 1970. So you really needed proof of adultery. And this was sufficient proof of adultery. And we got in because the manager of the building let us in. We didn't break any locks. We didn't uh, force any doors. He actually let us in. What uh, what I don't understand is this. You said it wasn't illegal to get this information in the apartment, but the apartment was not in Johnny's name. He paid for the apartment, but the apartment was leased in someone else's name. So I just want to have our audience understand how you can go in a court of law and say that we got, because now when you talk, you see any, you try to get any evidence that was gotten illegally or not by the proper channels and it's not admissible. How was this information admissible? You're overthinking it. That's, that's what's happening here. It never was an issue. The, the evidence was in, it was never raised that this was an illegal search or seizure or anything like that. The fact is that the evidence was sufficient to get him a divorce. It took two years after that because of hostilities between the parties. But nonetheless, 
what you say may be accurate in other instances, but in, in our case, it was never an issue. Now, here's an interesting thing you said, and again, uh, I don't mean to spend too much time on this, but I think it's fascinating. You said the only way to get a divorce was if you could prove adultery, which today there's two grounds for divorce. How am I so educated in this? There's irreconcilable differences and insanity. Well, and and I'll just say this. And the insanity plea in the history of California law has never been upheld. So every divorce in California is irreconcilable differences. Well, first of all, every state is different. New York is totally different than California. And this was New York then. California is a no-fault state. You don't need any reason for divorce. You just go in and you get it. They can't refuse you a divorce. Now, you may have issues about property and about alimony and, and child support and so on. But the divorce will always be granted. In New York, you couldn't do that in 1970. You needed absolute proof of adultery or the differences had to be such that psychiatrists had to testify that the parties just couldn't live together. And that was almost an impossible standard. So it's well documented that Johnny Carson was devastated by finding out that his wife was having an affair with a professional football player. Frank Gifford. Frank Gifford. Incredible. I'm just thinking of that Kathy Lee moment when she found out that he was having an affair and I don't believe that was was that that wasn't the same affair was it? Well, it, when it, she when she announced on television she was crying on television No, on, no, no. The, the the interesting thing here is that as a result of the book the the Joanne Carson affair with Frank Gifford which took place 44 years ago now became front page news of the New York Post for 3 days. And this was a 43-year-old affair with a guy who was dead. Okay. Now, Frank Gifford at the time said, I don't remember. I can't remember. Kathy Lee Gifford said it never happened. But this was 14 years before he ever met her. So it would be hard for her to deny something that he can't remember. That's the lunacy of what went on here. But the affair you're talking about was one that How bad did Joanne Carson have to be in bed for him not to remember? <laughs> <laughs> well, she denies it too, of course, and she denies the apartment as well. But look, the, the pleadings in New York were pretty specific as to what we found. They were filed, and actually, it's the cases in Bronx County. Uh, what was the divorce was granted in Bronx County, as it turns out. So the the affair you're talking about took place long after they were married, when Frank shacked up at the Regency Hotel with an airline stewardess for a week. That page page six of the New York Post, right? This made page one, front page. So, but... but The power of Carson. The power of Carson. Now, what I don't understand is that he's upset about it, yet during their marriage, he wasn't faithful the entire time. So how could he be upset when he wasn't faithful to her. Well, you see, you then have to talk about the degree of upset. It lasted a day and a half, you know? That's how long it lasted. He was over it after a day and a half. So, yeah, he was shaken. He was humiliated. He was tormented by the scene. But uh, the next night, uh, you know, at Jilly's Bar in New York, he, he got over it. You know, he, he, he wept over it. 
he 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 you know he cried over it and he was over it how many times had frank gifford done the tonight show before that he found out that he was having an affair with his wife i i have no no idea if he ever did it how many times he do it after i have no idea (laughs) okay no worries all right so you're you're involved in that you get involved in that and as oftentimes happens you know you must be doing something around that time besides just making sure that if something went down, you'd protect them. Because a guy of that person's stature in life and where he's going in his life and his career doesn't then hire somebody to be his attorney just because they're hanging around to make sure nothing happens. And if something does happen, you'll protect them. What is it that you did that you feel was so extraordinary that separated you from the pack of all the different attorneys who most likely wanted to be involved in his life but weren't that got you in the game? I don't think I did anything extraordinary, to tell you the truth. I think I I had the good fortune, just like your friend in Boston, had the good fortune to be there on a night you know, when Carson had no one to turn to. His manager was not interested in his uh, concerns. His wife was just as bad as he was in terms of the marriage. They were both drinking. There was uh, there were bitter fights over the years. He was carrying on with other women. She was carrying on. It was not a good marriage, and it was uh, evident to me once I got involved that it was never a good marriage. And so the hostility that I saw came about after they were separated. And to answer your question, he said, I'm getting a divorce. You handle it. Now, he could have hired any divorce lawyer. Sir. But you weren't, you weren't. I had a, never done a divorce. You weren't a divorce attorney. Why would it. Never wh- done a divorce. Why would a guy with so many advisors hire somebody who had no experience in that area of life? Because he had no one he could trust. He didn't have a lawyer he could trust. He didn't have a manager he could trust. He didn't have a wife he could trust. He didn't have a business manager he could trust. So he was a big star and sort of flailing. You got to give yourself some props here, okay? He didn't trust anybody. Why would he trust you? Anybody could have come there, a security guard. Are you saying if if anybody showed up, he would have just said, hey, you're going to do my divorce? No, I don't think so. So what is it that you were... He had, look, he had moments with me that he felt he could trust me. And obviously, uh, it wasn't that I was representing to him that I was a divorce lawyer. I was I was an entertainment lawyer doing mostly music work. That's what we did in my firm. Uh, Jerry Weintraub, who you may know, was a client of ours. Of course. We, we represented Grand Funk Railroad. I hope you guys may remember Grand Funk of Railroad. Of course, the loudest band in history. Okay. So so I was doing entertainment work, not divorce work. But the the guys in my firm had done divorces and, and I explained to him that they would help me and they did. And and the the, the trust or the confidence began to grow. And and it didn't happen overnight. It probably took two years before I think he felt completely uh, confident in talking to me as a lawyer and as a friend, meaning that he had moved to California by 1972, and it was then that he asked me to come out and join him. And you were married, and you had to talk to your wife and say, listen, you know, honey, we got to 
uh, we have this opportunity. If she had said, I, I like it in New York, I want to stay in New York, what would you have done? She did say that, but we moved. <laughs> I mean, she was unfamiliar with, with Los Angeles. I had been coming out regularly. She had not been out before. Before we moved into the house that we moved into, she hadn't set foot in Los Angeles. So she was nervous, but quickly got into it. And were you part of a firm then or on your own? So I was with my own firm in New York when he then moved to California. That's the one that you formed with... Uh, uh, Arnold Co Copelson yep. and Jimmy Walsh. Yes. yes. Got it. And so, and who were their big clients at the time? Well, Jimmy had Joe Namath and uh, Arnold Copelson was a bank lawyer and a uh, motion picture lawyer. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And so you come out here to L.A., uh, The Tonight Show comes out here. Take me through this next period of time when The Tonight Show came out here and sort of a new set of problems because one of the things that I read in the book was the fact that something that a lot of us know about celebrities and it's hard for us to believe because perception we always think is reality. So here's a guy who's like the biggest household name in television in our country, yet in the two years that you he started trusting you, you started realizing that well, there was all this crazy stuff happening with wives, affairs, his affairs, drinking, carousing, and the fact that these people who were working with his money, his manager, and everybody around him were making decisions that he wasn't aware of and he didn't make himself aware of. He sort of like sort of lived away from that and trusted these people. And you came in and in those two years, you realized that there was a lot of stuff going on that was really bringing him down. And it shocked you how little he actually had. Can you talk about that? Yeah, certainly. The The divorce required that I go through all of his assets because New York, the judge made the decision as to wh who got what. And so it was very important to go through all the assets. Joanne Carson had no assets, for example. So everything was coming from Johnny's side. And uh, th that that got me into his business affairs with his manager. It got me into business affairs with NBC, what his contract was. It got me into business affairs to what his uh, agency uh, commissions were and how screwed up that was. So, and so and it, 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 it all 
said to me, this is totally screwed up. And so talk about the steps you took one by one to help him get to the point where he can control his own destiny, his own finances, and at least have those worries put aside. Talk about that and how much money he was making a year back then in his ninth and tenth years of the show coming here and and what you did and uncovered with the manager and the agency and how you rectified things. I know a lot of questions. It's another simple question. <laughs> the well, the answer is that working backwards, he was making forty million a year when he retired in nineteen ninety two. So the the circumstance in 1967, for example, when the tax rate in the United States combined with New York was 90% of your income. So if you were making 100000 a week, effectively you'd be taking home 10000 a week. That's just the way it was. So in those days, everybody deferred income. So Silly as it sounds, Johnny was one point was making a hundred thousand a week, but taking home three thousand a week. So he was living on three thousand a week. Now, of course, will you explain the deferred income and how that worked for an sure, artist? Sure. If you defer income, you're not taxed on it. So if you take three thousand a week, you're taxed on three thousand a week, which is much lower than ninety percent. But if you take a hundred thousand a week, you're taxed at ninety, and you'd be making ten. So, well, when do you get the deferred income? It it in Johnny's case, the deferred income came twenty years later. So, if it was earned in 1967, it was actually going to be given to him in 1987. So, you're saying that Johnny Carson, in his fifth year of the Tonight Show in 1967 that he was making $150,000 a year and living in New York City? That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is he was making uh, $100,000 a week or $5 million a year. Uh, but that $5 million effectively was deferred for 20 years. So the cost of the $5 million in 1967 might have been a million and a half dollars to NBC. And you accrue it long enough in 20 years, it's worth... Five million. But look, they furnished a car and driver for him. He was able to buy an apartment at UN Plaza, which was 5,000 square feet. They lent him the money to do that because they were, in effect, holding his money. So he was able to na navigate. But the biggest problem was with the William Morris Agency because those guys negotiated the deal and they were billing him 10000 a week. For a ten percent commission on a hundred thousand, when he was taking home three, so when I got involved, he had a bill to William Morris that he couldn't possibly pay. He was getting billed ten thousand a week, or a half a million a year, and he's taking home a hundred and fifty-five thousand or something like that. So, ultimately, ultimately, it came down to William Morris either backing off, you know, just tearing up that. They were getting paid three hundred a week based on his three three thousand. But in nineteen eighty seven, they get paid millions of dollars. Yeah, but but at the time, one of my partners, I was still with the old law firm, put it to William Morris that either you just tear up that IOU, or no more William Morris clients on the Tonight Show. So they tore up the IOU, 
and and that was the end of that. So he no longer. So owned. you got them to forego what ended up being millions and millions and millions of dollars. Well, it, it, no, no, it would have been ten percent of of five million, right? Times three, so it would have been a million and a half dollars. And so your partner blackballed William Morris and told right. them they wouldn't right. get any right. money, any any people on the show. Right. It goes full circle, doesn't it, with Helen Kushnick and The Tonight Show with Jay Leno? Look, it's part of the business, you know. It's tough being The Tonight Show, whether it's Jimmy Fallon or Jay Leno or Johnny Garson or David Letterman. It's tough getting good guests because you're competing. Now that Fallon's back in New York, he's competing with Letterman, right? And, you know, odds are everybody wants to go on Jimmy Fallon now. You know, no one cares about David Letterman in that sense. There's nothing new. There's nothing exciting. There's nothing creative going on. It's all the old stuff. At least with Fallon, you're getting brilliant stuff at times. A yeah. lot of fun. Absolutely. All right. So you negotiated those. Tell uh, our audience what you found out about Johnny's manager. Well, I found out that Johnny's clothing company called Johnny Carson Apparel was owned by Hart Shafter and Marks and Sonny Werblin, and none of it was owned by Johnny Carson. Sonny Werblin was his manager at the time. Yes, and, and he had been president of the New York Jets. He had been uh, uh, president of television for MCA at the time and became uh, the czar of the New Jersey Sports Authority and then led to the creation of uh, the Meadowlands. So, so here he was you, a big time important he, he was a big time guy. he was big time manager but what's odd is that he endorsed you to Johnny Carson. And here you came in and you went through his stuff and you took him down. Well, I, you know, I thought about that and I thought, well, he must have felt I was just this young kid and he's going to handle the divorce. And that'll be that. Russell Wilson was a young kid on, in the Super Bowl, too. So uh, that that led to Sonny giving up his interest. Johnny got the 50%. Sonny went his way. Johnny went his way. And uh, they still remain neighbors. When you showed Johnny all this stuff, did you try to keep the relationship together or did you tell him to get rid of the manager? Well, look, in, in, in a lawyer's role as advisor, you know, counsel, you know, that's one of the roles, counsel. What would I counsel? Of, of course I would counsel to get rid of this guy. He was, he was stealing from his own client. I mean, he was getting paid from The Tonight Show every week as an executive producer and doing nothing. So, what was his fee as executive producer, knowing that Johnny was taking home 3000 He was getting 6000 <laughs> That's not that unusual. It happens. All right. So you so you get them all straightened out financially, and which is great. So his, his business life is all set. It's getting together. All he's got to do is paying you. And you're not a 5% attorney at the time, are you? You're an hourly attorney. No, I'm, I'm strictly hourly in the sense that when I moved to California, I wasn't about to move without him guaranteeing me so much income a month because he, he, he's the reason I'm moving. And, and we agreed to terms that I moved. All right. So he says, I want you out here. Now you got to go to your client and negotiate a deal with him to pay you a certain amount of money. 
how did you arrive at the amount of money that you asked him for? And was that the exact amount of money that he said, okay? Or did he try to say, hey, come on, Henry, let's not go crazy. How about if I give you this? Well, I was tormented over exactly what you've asked. I had to. That's why I'm here to bring back the torment. <laughs> I had to prepare a document, and I did it in longhand. Uh, you again, you no, prepared no, the document I, by hand? I prepared a document by hand, and it, it, it said exactly what I felt I needed in order to move to California. What was and, that amount of money? Uh, I, I'll try to recall. I don't recall at the moment. It it's wasn't not like you had an affair much. here, it Henry. It wasn't very much. I think it might have been a guarantee of 6000 a month, okay? Something like that. But the reality is he looked at the piece of paper or page and a half and he handed it back to me. He says, fine. That was it. Now, you being an attorney and you're a negotiator as well, this is one of the things that always bothered me is why probably when I negotiate, it's a long and uh, process that's real. I'm always fighting for to make sure that nothing's left on the table. So you being an attorney, you give him a number and he just looked at it and said, fine. Did you say to yourself afterwards, God, if I had just, if I had written down 10000 a month, he might have said fine. No, I, I really didn't. I, I, was, I was comfortable enough to, to use that as the basis for coming out here. And indeed, I rented a house uh, on Linden Drive in Beverly Hills on the 700 block Beverly Hills, a beautiful Spanish house with a guest house for 2000 a month, okay? And my wife thought I was nuts to pay that much for a house, you know, to rent a house. Now today, that house on Linda Drive, instead of 2000 would be 25000 a month. That's how times have changed. But I was paying 2000 a month, and I was guaranteed 6000 a month, so I... I felt I was covered, and, and pretty soon the business started to, to grow, and uh, Copelson moved out. Jimmy Walsh didn't. He, he stayed in New York, and the firm began to prosper, and uh, things, things took on a uh, sort of a life of their own in California after New York. Now, the money that you got from Carson, was that carved out of your firm? That that was strictly for me. It had nothing to do with the law firm. Did your law? Well, of course it did. He was a client. No, no, no. When when I came out, I came out on my own. I had partners in New York, and whatever business I had in New York remained in New York, other than Carson. So they were handling all of that business, and I wasn't participating in that. Got it. So your deal with those partners was you didn't get any of their clients' money. Or, or clients that I left for them in New York. So partnerships worked differently back then. So people could work independently and make one partner could make more money than the other. But I, when I came out here, I, I was coming out on my own. I wasn't a partner. At some point, a new firm was formed, and I became a partner in that firm. And indeed, certain income of mine was carved out of that partnership that the law firm participated not uh, in any way. In. Got it. So you get his business life set, and he's finally feeling safe in business. But then you're thrust into a situation where you find yourself involved in other areas of his life that you can't control, which are the relationships. And so here he divorced Joanne. I'm sure you helped him figure out the settlement for that. 
Well, it it came down it came down to going to court and having the judge, New York Supreme Court in Bronx County, uh, tell Mrs. Carson at the time, you had to sign this document, which she was refusing to sign, or we're going to trial tomorrow, and I assure you, you're going to get less uh, going to trial than you're going to get by this document. So she signed it. Then what was then. the amount Johnny offered her? She agreed to 6000 a month. For how long? As long as uh, she lived and he lived. When you were doing your deal with uh, Carson, were you saying, hey, well, she got 6000 a month. That seems like a good round number. Let me ask for 6000 a month. No, no, no. It, I did my deal before that, <laughs> <laughs> before that was actually concluded. Got it. So 6000 a month until somebody passes away. Right. And she got paid right up until 2005. And so now he's clear, he's a single guy, he's got his focus, he's fooling around and being a playboy. It almost seems right away he meets another woman, not Joanne, Joanna, Joanna Holland. And if I'm not mistaken from the book, what I remember reading was the fact that you weren't a big fan of uh, him getting married again. And he had a prenuptial arrangement that I believe that you were involved in helping him get together. And then at the very last minute, I, I believe that he didn't want to ruin the relationship by confronting her with the prenuptial arrangement agreement. And I think there was something involved in that that you were very involved with. Can you explain that? All of what you said is accurate. He, at the end, refused to sign a prenuptial agreement that I... <laughs> Desperately tried to get him to sign, and after all, I was two years his lawyer, so I didn't have a great deal of balls, if you will, at the time to stand up to him, and he refused to sign it. Now, what, what did the prenup? Uh, do you remember anything that it said? Sure, uh, prenups for guys like Carson at the time. I think of any big star at the time, Sinatra, or or anybody of that ilk would have done the same thing, and it meant that the income that he's making is his. The new wife has nothing to do with that. And if he continues to make more and more money at that same job, she recognizes that she has nothing to do with that increase in compensation. Okay. In return, in return, he agrees to provide for her or the the spouse, as because it could be a wife and you know, could be doing the same thing. If she's the actress making a lot of money. So these these were pretty standard in those days. So the days. standard prenup basically back then and today is the fact that whether it be a woman or a man who's the breadwinner, all the income that they make in their present job that existed beforehand they met and exists after they met, no matter how big it gets, is their money. And it's separate, it's separate money, and there's an arrangement for how well the person will take care of you during the marriage. In other words, it might say that they'll pay for the mortgage, pay for all the groceries, pay for your car, give you a certain amount of money per month to live on. And then, God forbid, if we divorce 10 years from now, you're not going to get anything. No, uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't work like that. In Carson's case, it would have worked like she would get... For example, a million dollars for every year of the marriage. Okay, so the marriage lasted ten years. She'd she'd walk away with ten million plus whatever it was that he had given her as gifts 
not as community property, but as a gift, a husband to a wife, a diamond bracelet, a diamond necklace, whatever, a painting, a mink coat. Those are gifts. That that becomes her property. So in Johnny's case, it was never nothing. It was always a certain amount per year married, which was an inducement, obviously, to stay married. And so he went right back into this relationship, wouldn't sign the prenup. And then tell me about how your relationship is holding up at the time. What's fascinating to me is you're working with a guy and you're seeing all these things. You're clearing up the areas of his life that are a little bit difficult and unstructured and messed up. You're seeing that you can't clean up the relationship thing. So even as he's getting married to Joanna and he's falling in love with Joanna, you're still early on seeing him have affairs, which where he went right back into a marriage and now you're in a marriage and you're around a guy who goes to Vegas, goes to all these places and the whole thing about Johnny and his feelings about going to Vegas, there was a, there was a philosophy with him where he wanted you there with him at all times. Firstly, I'm going to ask you this. When do you feel like you gained his a hundred percent trust when he felt comfortable taking you on these trips to Vegas or to uh, France. What was the moment in your mind where you felt, my God, this guy, I'm in a hundred percent. There's not one shadow of a doubt in his mind that I am not a guy who he can trust. I don't think I ever had that feeling, to tell you the truth. Uh, there was a, a New Yorker magazine article back in 1978 written by Kenneth Tynan, who was a brilliant British writer and, and theater critic. O Calcutta was a play he wrote. In, in that New Yorker article, Johnny told him that I was his best friend. So I read that, right? I read that. What year was that? I think came out in 78, so this is eight years into our relationship where he says, I'm his best friend. Now, this often happens to a, a lot of artists who are out there. A lot of people in the business, they, you know, you're, you're hanging out with somebody and you, you know, you have a good relationship. And then somebody says, you're my best friend. And in your mind, you walk away and you're like, Jesus, well, I, I, uh, I don't think of them as my best friend. I could echo that. See, I never thought that he was my best friend because any superstar, and I'm sure you know more than I do, but any superstar has a hair trigger about certain things. And you take a movie star, you have a few bad movies in a row, and all of a sudden it's not your fault. Look, I, I've represented Neil Simon, for example. Neil Simon's perhaps our most brilliant playwright, but I don't think Neil was ever wrong about anything in his entire life. <laughs> So if a play didn't make it, he asked the producer, why do you let me do it? Or he'd fly me to Boston and say, what do you think? And I'd have to say, terrific work, when it was just a piece of crap. You know, the play never made it to Broadway. But it was never the artist's fault. You know, Now I'm a writer, presumably, and I'm going to play something if the next book doesn't work on somebody, I can assure you. But th look, you become a superstar, you have, you have moments where if you go into a restaurant and the table's not ready, you're going to walk out. That's just the way it is. And so normal people don't act like that. Superstars, that's, that's narcissistic. You know, the system breeds narcissism. 
You know, everybody has narcissism characteristics. You have to, right? You must in order to survive, to dress well, want to look good. But when you get out of your car and they're waiting for you at the restaurant to show you your table, and all of a sudden they say, stand at the bar for a few minutes, you know, all hell's going to break loose. It would with Carson, I assure you. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.